Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very happy today to welcome back Professor Yanis Yano to the podcast. Yanis was, in fact, the first guest of the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Yanis is an Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the London Business School and a leading researcher on business sustainability. His research is focused on understanding whether, how, and the extent to which companies and capital markets can lead on the path towards a sustainable future. He's a global influencer, speaker, and advisor, engaging with top executives around the world. Yanis recently launched a new online London Business School program on sustainability leadership and corporate responsibility. So thank you very much, Yanis, for joining me once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure and a privilege. Great. So you actually were the very first interview and uh, uh, a few <laughs> years ago now, a very, very interesting interview it was at the time. Uh, and I, I'd love to just maybe for the audience get a, a remind us a little bit of your background and, and, and maybe what's on your mind at the moment. Absolutely. So I've been at the London Business School for about 10 years now. Prior to that, I did my studies in the US. I was trained as an undergrad as an economist. And then later on at Harvard Business School, I switched to studying business strategy and management. Since my uh, the, since I joined London Business School, all of my work has focused on these big ideas of sustainability, environmental and social responsibility by corporations. Um, and in particular, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in really understanding um, why is it that companies are trying to integrate environmental and social issues into the way they do business? How are they doing it? And in fact, what are the implications in terms of their own performance, but also in terms of the impact that they have on the world of this integration, uh, sustainability inter- integration effort? So the big question that I am uh, particularly concerned with in, in my in my work is what can we learn about strategy and organizations going forward about how businesses can contribute towards finding solutions for the world's most acute global challenges by focusing, by integrating environmental and social issues into the way they do business, into their business models, and into their um, structures. Um, so what's on my mind? My mind is really understanding um, how uh, companies behave are embedded in within society, and how are they making these decisions? Because I think companies have a huge potential uh, to have an impact, both positive and negative. And I think it's important to try to understand at least under what conditions and how are they making those decisions that can have a positive impact on society at large. Great, great. Big question here. Um, it, not something that we can necessarily parse in a, in a short amount of time. But what's the best way, do you think, to you know assess how much progress has actually been made by the corporate sector in terms of the sustainability agenda? There's a lot of momentum, a lot of discussion. The business roundtable talking about you know uh, what, the, what the purpose of you know businesses and, and so forth, uh, investors. What have you? But how can we really work out, you know, t- cut, cut through that and, and, and say, well, how much has really changed? 
Well, I think um, we need to first understand changes in the context in order to start understanding the changes that companies themselves are undertaking. So um, I think in the last couple of years, what we have seen is that the pressures on companies have intensified dramatically. Uh, and they come co quite literally from all angles. Think about millennials and Gen Z, for instance. They enter product and services markets, so that they demand ESG accountability in the products and services that they buy. They enter labor markets, and therefore they demand uh, alignment of purpose as employees of companies. And we also know that there is an intergenerational transfer of wealth that is currently underway from the baby boomers to these younger generations. And therefore, the third component of this pressure is that the, the millennials and Gen Zs are going to be putting pressure as investors, and therefore demanding environmentally, socially responsible investments. But that's, of course, only one part of the equation. We have fundamentally the science improving, telling us more. And the more we learn, it seems that the worse this these problems are becoming. Um, we have the government slowly but steadily st starting to spring into action at adopt more long-term commitments to reduce carbon, more environmental regulations, and more institutional commitment, if you like, towards a more sustainable, more inclusive growth uh, for everyone. And we have this major force, of course, which is called the, the, the investor community, whether we talk about asset owners, asset managers, uh, pension funds, and so on, institutional investors, where um, they, they are demanding at the very least that companies understand the risks that are being created by these big global challenges, both in the environmental and in the social sphere. So that's the background, right? So these are the pressures that have, have and continue to be intensifying and therefore become more value relevant for all companies out there. Now, the response has been quite diverse across companies. First of all, it, it is important to understand that given these pressures, we are going through a period of profound experimentation. There is no one solution fits all and there is no one right answer that would feel, fit all industries all the time. So companies are going through a period in which they are testing the ground. They try to understand what environmental issues are important for us, what social issues are important for us. How do we rethink our relationship with stakeholders? How do we rethink our relationship with our shareholders and with society uh, at large, and, and sometimes fundamentally rethinking about the very business model of what it means to be a business in a particular industry. Think about, for instance, the automobile industry. Um, we already see, I mean, if you think about London, for instance, in the UK, we already see companies banning the sale of fossil fuel cars. Now, as you can imagine, that has fundamental implication of, about what it means to be an automobile company. Do you invest in hybrid cars? Do you invest in electric cars? Or do you go into self-driven cars and then now become a uh, future of mobility sort of company? Now, these are fundamental changes. These, these are changes that have to do with identity and the very uh, idea of what a company is and what industry is it in. So I think that in order to measure or perhaps understand progress, it's important to see the distribution, if you like, of responses across companies and see which way this distribution is moving. And in, in my humble opinion, I think that against the background of this intense 
pressures, multidimensional and complex pressures, I think the distribution is moving to the right. In other words, we see companies making uh, on the right hand side of the distribution making much more bold commitments. For instance, look at Microsoft recently, right? It's not just about going to net zero, but it's actually eliminating all the carbon emissions since the company was founded, for instance, right? So you have on the right hand side of the distribution companies that are being bold, ambitious with their targets and what they're trying to achieve, but also so you have other companies where at the very least they are following the leaders and therefore they adopt practices that seem to be emerging as common best practices. For instance, reducing your carbon emissions, gender pay equality and so on. Those are coming to the forefront as the very minimum that you need to do. So on average, um, and that was a long way of, of answering the, your question, but I think that on average, if we, th- uh, if we see a companies as a distribution, essentially, I I feel that the distribution is moving to the right in terms of raising ambition, raising the standard, and raising what is the minimum acceptable level of engagement on sustainability issues uh, across industries. Very, very interesting. Um, You talk about the minimum level uh, um, response to uh, sustainability. What is, can you talk a little bit about materiality? And, And I'm just wondering, um, is it possible that for, for, for many companies that their uh, actual ESG mandate or what's material for them could be a, a very tiny part of what they're actually doing? Yeah, I mean, sustain, uh, sorry, uh, materiality is a huge topic, right? But um, and, and it's one of those confusing topics as well, uh, because it touches upon this idea of, of ESG measurement and standards and ratings and so. I think the first thing that I should note, though, that the fact that we are talking about materiality in the ESG space already tells us a lot about how quickly this space has moved in terms of reporting and measurement and how important it has become because materiality is a concept that we, of course, often use in financial accounts, right? So now we're we're thinking about materiality in the context of ESG, which means that, and that's a very positive sign, that at least some people out there and some organizations and some investors are thinking about ESG issues at the same level and with the same importance, if you like, as we look at financial information. So I welcome and I think it's extremely encouraging that we have a discussion about materiality within ESG. It shows the level of progress and how quickly we have moved in the right direction. Now, as I'm I'm sure uh, you know, there is no one single definition of materiality. And I think that materiality, to some extent, does depend on your point of view. For instance, on the one hand, we have SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, where uh, they're very explicit in saying that we want to look at this from the investor point of view. And therefore, when we talk about materiality, we are looking at financial materiality. In other words, the importance that these ESG factors have on a company's ability to generate financial value. But that's not the only definition. It's one of the different definitions of materiality. Stakeholders, for instance, might have another definition, which is about not only the financial uh, potential of a company, but also it's um, it's the impact that it has on its stakeholders, on, on the environment, on society, on employees, and so on. 
Now, there's even more sophisticated definitions, right, that go beyond this dichotomy and say, well, we need to start discussing this idea of dual or double materiality. In other words, understanding a particularly ESG issue and its integration by companies in terms of not only its financial performance, but also in terms of its impact on the stakeholders at the same time. So you see, it's almost a, a holy grail sort of thing because though that sort of materiality in principle is the one that you like, the one that uh, generates a thriving business and at the same time a business that positively contributes. Of course, it's difficult to define what is this idea of double materiality uh, at, that, that would apply uh, across different contexts, uh, across different industries and so on. Now, uh, again, I think that this, let's call it confusion, perhaps, that exists on these definitions, and this extends, by the way, not only to the idea of materiality, but in general of on this idea of how do we measure ESG, it's, in my view, reflects, in a sense, a race to the top. It's because so many people are interested in this that we have so many rating agencies. It's because we all think that this is important, that there are different proposals on the table about not only what is materiality, but also what is a reporting standard? Is it going to be an integrated report? Is it going to be according to SASB? Is it going to be according to the task force for climate-related disclosures? Those are all proposals that are currently on the table that advance, in my view, the conversation, highlight different aspects of a very, very difficult problem. And, and therefore, those are conversations that, uh, frustrating as they might be from uh, in terms of, oh, we don't have one solution, we don't have one standard, we don't have one rating. I think they, they allow us, before we arrive at that one standard or one rating, to, to really refine our thinking and really refine the, the, the rigor and the, how solid these, these, um, these measurements are. So I think that all, all those are a, a good um, signs on the on the way uh, towards uh, uh, eventually, if you like, measuring these issues. And by the way, I don't think that it's it's a sort of a one-off answer. For instance, let me let me just take us a little bit outside of the sustainability context. When an analyst evaluates a company, right, in terms of financially, of course, it would take account its uh, its business model. Of course, it would take account the uh, into account the structure of the industry in which the company is in. And of course, it has to take into account the kind of unique resources and capabilities that the company has. So you see, I just mentioned to you three levels, the industry, the business model, and the underlying resource base of a company. Now, do we have one acceptable way of how to weigh the industry importance versus the business model importance versus the resource importance? Of course we don't. It's it's, it's up to the individual analyst. It's up to the investor to judge, if you like, um, how to weigh those factors, even for a company's financial performance. I think when we go into the ESG space, of course, things do complexify, but we need to keep in mind that eventually we, we're not going to reach one standard or one, only one single way of understanding these issues, um, especially when it comes to investment decisions, but also more broadly. Now, 
it's 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 important to understand that you know there might be value in this conf- confusion. In other words, if you are an investor that better understands this data or better understands this materiality, chances are you're going to make better investment decisions. Otherwise, if you go with traditional finance theory, right? If we all trade on the same information and we go to full efficient market, then it becomes extremely difficult for anyone to make money out of this, right? So it's 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 interesting that we go into this this period with the proliferation of data give generates proliferation of investment strategies, but very understandably so, because uh, there is, you know, this wealth of data and people are really trying to capture a very important underlying construct, which is this idea of a company's commitment to um, to ESG. Very interesting. Now, the, the one area where there's, as you say, considerable momentum, are there a couple of other significant developments, would you say, in the corporate sustainability area uh, since we first spoke? Um, I think, and, and uh, I'll, I'll refer to some recent uh, academic work that we have done in this field because with my co-author, George uh, Serafim, we, we tried to really understand what has happened in the last five or six years in terms of what companies are actually doing in the sustainability space, especially in terms of understanding sustainability as potentially a corporate strategy. And there comes... Uh, uh, the debate uh, that, that a lot of people have on their minds these days, which is, well, is this sustainability thing something that companies do as a hygienic factor or something that's necessary, as something that will merely ensure their survival, or is there outperformance in sustainability? Can it also be a strategy in the traditional sense that not only takes you in the middle of the pack, but takes you in front of the pack, right? It makes you a leader in your industry. Um, which one is true and how has that debate evolved across industries in recent years? And what we found in this study is a it's a study where we use the entire universe of the MSCI ratings from 2012 to about 2017. Um, and what we found was, was very interesting. So first of all, we found that across all in almost all industries in the sample, and there were more than 65 different sectors and industries in the sample, we find what we call convergence. In other words, companies are increasingly adopting a similar set of practices within their industry. There is concentration, in other words, of adoption on particular initiatives across across industries. Now, these initiatives need not be the same. In some industries, they might relate to carbon emissions. In others, they might relate to human capital. But what we see is that within industry, there is convergence. What does that mean? It means that we are observing, at least to some degree, the emergence of common best practices. These common best practices might be different across industries, but companies in recent years are increasingly more likely to adopt them because they consider that to be what we talked about earlier, perhaps the bare minimum, what would take you in the middle of the pack. Now, that was very interesting because uh, it showed us that, uh, as I said, across all the, um, almost all the industries, there is this type of convergence, but also it revealed to us that uh, different industries converge on these common practices at different speeds, which is very interesting to, uh, to, to, to ask then, um, why is that the case? Why is it the case that some industries move faster into establishing common practices versus others? And, and there it's, it's, we found some very interesting findings. So the first one is that um, industries tend to move faster uh, when the industry leaders, in terms of market cap, in other words, the financial leaders, 
also become sustainability leaders. So this told us essentially that um, the 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 uh, best of companies in an industry tend to be imitated. So in those industries in which the financial leaders also become sustainability leaders, um, we, we observe acceleration of common practices. In other words, it is true what they say that when 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 Unilever or PNG or other uh, big companies uh, commit to these initiatives to sustainability, is not that they. Uh, uh, of course, change their own practices, but they have a catalytic effect on the rate at which their industry progresses towards sustainability. And that's very important because it, it gives us another angle at which uh, to, to, to look at the impact of the world's largest companies and how influential they are beyond the walls of their own organization. Now, other factors that drive um, this speed of convergence is, of course, the relative materiality of environmental and social issues compared to governance. In other words, if the environmental and social issues are relatively more material, there is more scope of action, and therefore companies are more likely to adopt these practices. And the third factor is stakeholder scrutiny. Uh, to what extent, in other words, is the, the, the industry under continuous uh, kind of scrutiny for its environmental and social practices, the higher the pressure, the higher the acceleration. So the, the, the takeaway there is that not only have we observed the emergence of best practices, but we also now begin to understand why is it the case that some industries move faster than others and what is the role of big business within that? Now, the last component of this research, which I think is, 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 is critical also from a strategy point of view, is that after we were able to uncover what is the common best practice, we also were able to then, in comparison, of course, say, well, what was a unique practice, right? Because we now have for every industry a set of, 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 of initiatives that we have identified as common. And compared to those, we can see, well, other companies that do, did something different. So we term those initiatives uh, unique. In other words, they were different from the common best practices in a particular industry. And then we started correlating, if you like, the common best practices and these unique practices with the company's financial performance. So what you find there uh, in terms of you know thinking about sustainability as strategy is also very interesting because first the first finding is that if you're a laggard on common practices, in other words, if you don't keep up with that bare minimum, your performance will suffer. Right. So this is the first uh, uh, piece of solid uh, piece of evidence that falling behind the trends in sustainability is going to financially harm you. It's not that you're just going to be the average. It's going to have negative implications on your performance. But we also found that these unique strategies like oh, uh, uh, that are different from just the common best practice are the ones that correlate positively with financial performance, especially for those companies that are leaders in, that, in, in, in the adoption of these unique practices. So what the evidence of this study together tells us and what is the learnings of, you know, the, the latest, if you like, from the sustainability uh, data that we have available, and as I mentioned, this is up to 2017, uh, is that um, sustainability is both a necessary condition, in other words, something that companies need to do, have to do in order to stay in the middle of the pack or stay relevant within their industry. And on top of that, what we know is that um, companies that want to 
can and do and differentiate themselves by also adopting unique practices within their industry that remain. In other words, that become very difficult for their competitors to imitate, which is essentially the idea behind competitive advantage. So strategy sustainability is this very interesting uh, 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 domain, if you like, where it's both the best practice and at the same time, it gives you the the, the, the chance to differentiate yourself and, and build a competitive advantage. Very interesting, very interesting. Where do investors fit in here? And I'm just wondering, um, what you know, uh, did you factor that into your research? And just more generally, uh, speaking to somebody who's quite close to this whole space about sustainability leaders, he noticed a disproportionate uh, number of private companies that are active here, and 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 we have seen uh, aggressive pursuit of uh, in in in, in uh, by in certain kinds of investors after companies that have pursued uh, quite aggressive sustainability uh, an aggressive sustainability agenda. Yeah, I think the the uh, the investor side is very critical as well. It's one of the, those major forces that is really propelling uh, companies to adopt sustainability practices. But similar to the, um, the 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 corporate context, one needs to understand that there is diversity within within uh, the investor community as well. There is different incentives, there's different time horizons, there's different ways through which ESG is integrated. As you know, there is positive screening, negative screening, engagement, voting behavior, and so on. So I think when we, again, start talking about the investor community, we need to start talking about the distribution of practices. In other words, what, what is the direction of travel of the industry as a whole? And I think what we are looking at there is increasing level of commitment, increasing level of understanding at the very least that environmental and social issues are risks that need to be taken into consideration. That's why, for instance, in the UK, um, the government is mandating that pension funds and pension trustees disclose um, uh, more explicitly, how they um, uh, they uh, account for climate risk into their portfolios. I do think I, I think that's why we look at these very ambitious initiatives, which are extremely positive, like the stewardship code here in the UK, which is not only world class but world leading, um, clarifying, if you like, or highlighting the role of. Uh, of finance and the, uh, and the finance function as being good stewards of uh, of capital. So there's a number of these uh, indications that um, show the way uh, in terms of sustainability. Now, the, the issue is that um, for some of these environmental and social issues, I don't think that you know, companies are, are or are not protected depending on their status as public or private companies. For instance, climate change impacts are not going to, dis- or disruptions in supply chains or adaptation costs. Those, those kinds of impacts are not going to distinguish between public and private companies or public and private investors, right? But the investors, those, the investors yeah. may, the, the investors may, Yanis, the investors may say, actually, you know, we don't care or, you know, we have the situation where we know the you know world's top three asset managers have whatever three hundred billion fossil fuel investments. You know maybe there are a whole wave. Maybe the, the the most significant wave of investors 
don't really care. And of course, you're right, private and public companies are going to face, you know, there's going to be no difference necessarily in, in, in the scale of the impact it has. But maybe there will be an impact in terms of investors' willingness to, to allow companies to, if you frame it that way, to take bold sustainability actions. Right, but, but what I'm saying is that if I'm a private investor, how could I not care? Because risk is risk, right? My company, whether private or public, it will still not perform well if, it's, it, if it, it doesn't take the necessary measures, for instance, to protect its supply chain from climate change risk, for instance, or social issues and so on. I think that the, 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 the risk, or at the very least, and forget about the upside, but the risk is very similar across both types of, uh, of organizations, unless I'm not understanding your, your yeah, question. Yeah no, no, exactly. I, I, yeah, no, I absolutely understand that. What I'm saying yeah. is that, you know, if you're a private company, uh, you can take a longer-term uh, focus. You can say, well, sustainability is the right thing. We mightn't be able to show the business case now, but we're willing to do this because we believe and, you know, it, it makes sense. Uh, and they're not going to have investors interrogating them and, and saying, well, you know, where, where's the business case? Can we see the return on investment on, you know, all those kinds of things? So they've got much more scope to take action ahead of the pack. Yeah, uh, I think that is a good, a plausible theoretical argument. I haven't seen evidence that this is true. Uh, I, I would suspect it might be, at least under some conditions. But I think we need to be acutely aware and, and not cast the investment or market in a in a in a dark light yes of course there's going to be investors that uh greenwash them label things but don't actually do anything or maybe they say we care about esg but their voting record does not support that and so on but i do think we need to be careful in terms of the fact that uh Companies, of course, need to integrate these issues, but in a, in, a, in a way that is sophisticated, right, in a way that has discipline, in a way that it, it, it obviously generates uh, financial returns. In other words, it is not sufficient for companies to say, oh, I'm adopting a long-term point of view, and therefore uh, the, dealing with this ESG issue today is going to pay off in the long run. You don't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm in the long run, and now this is time for this investment to pay. The long run is going to be a, a series of disciplined short terms. Now, um, and as I said, it's, it's also a matter of alignment between a company and its investor base. I think that the long-term investors can afford and do afford uh, companies the, 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 the time to, to make those investments. Think about the pharmaceutical industry, for instance, and forget about ESG. Um, do the investors expect returns from pharmaceutical companies? Of course they do. But they also understand that those multi-billion uh, uh, R&D budgets are not going to pay off the next day. You cannot come up with a blockbuster drug within a week, right, or within a quarter even. So I think what we need to um, to note here is that uh, the, the perhaps a, a good chunk of the investors are realizing that uh, the, the right way, in my view, to look at the, the integration of environmental and social issues into strategy is that long-term horizon and stop calling it and move away from the let's say, the language of costs and start talking about the language of investment when it comes to how integrate these issues. And once we do that, then we can better communicate to investors why is it that we're making those investments. And that's a good disciplinary mechanism because 
what, where, when do you make investments? Well, obviously, you make investments in stakeholders or processes that are critical or are material for your business model. So that external accountability is not necessarily bad. Of course, yeah, you might have excessively short-term investors, but look what's happening. Even hedge funds out there are coming out these days and saying, well, the, uh, we're going to be activists in the ESG space because we consider it a risk. So I think those are all indications about the changing mind frame of the markets. But uh, I would say that although there might be advantages in the private space, for instance, look at Mars. They're doing a, a, a range of groundbreaking initiatives as a, uh, uh, as a private company. Um, you can also see groundbreaking initiatives like Unilever, for instance, which was a public company. Um, I'm not sure I would draw such a black and white distinction between private versus public, at least until I see at least some evidence, because I see uh, uh, reasons why, you know, different companies could thrive under a, a um, private context and different reasons why companies could thrive under a public context. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Unilever, but it came under substantial pressure when, uh, from Warren Buffett and others, uh, you know, and, and decidedly linked to its sustainability strategy, uh, assets have been shared, you know, and there has been, you know, uh, it's a significant factor. You seem more optimistic about, don't, do you not worry about the short-term nature of uh, many investors? And you mentioned the pharmaceutical industry, and I, I'm not familiar with the with, with, with figures recently, but I, I have heard of trends where the actual R&D is going down or the, the, the actual real research side of it. And you, know, the, the, you do see again and again pressures, people talking in the press and, and, and companies talking about the pressures of investors' uh, short-term horizon. Yes, of course I'm worried because, the, as I said, not all investors are the same. And they, you still find to this day investors that say, you know, it's all about shareholder value. I don't care about anything else. Now, the thing is, these investors, um, and, and that's, by the way, the, the role of uh, uh, regulation in institutions that, that, that kicks in, um, it, it's important to, to, to understand that, you know, even investors don't operate in a vacuum. So, for instance, if we were to have clear commitments as a society, as governments towards carbon emission reductions, if, like the UK, for instance, that the government uh, institutes a law that says by 2050 we're going to be carbon zero, then it is, is I, I would argue, it's impossible for an investor to ignore this because it has profound implications on the companies they invest in, even if they're, um, even if they are shorter. Um, uh, the, the fact that we're moving towards uh, carbon markets, for instance, and better pricing of. Uh, of, uh, of, of carbon emissions. Uh, look at all this discussion that's happening at the EU level. If, if we do get to a uh, legislation where we have a carbon border tax, for instance, that's going to be very short term. Even for the more short term of investors, that's going to have implications about even the pricing of products and services or the pricing of inputs. So I think that um, although they do exist and there are, there are also investors that greenwash, that's, that's certainly true. Uh, and there are investors that although they claim they do things, they don't actually have the sophistication, the knowledge, the skills or the experience to do things. So I'm not, in a, I'm not uh, just to be clear, I'm not defending any particular investor here or the investor community as a whole. I just see that, as I said, the direction of travel. It doesn't mean that all of them are traveling at the right speed. 
but that applies to companies as well. Companies greenwash too, um, and, and governments greenwash uh, as well. So you know, it's it, they, they, the the challenge here is as our understanding of sustainability becomes more and more sophisticated and more and more complex to be able to hold them to account, um, especially those that make public commitments. For instance, look at what happened with BlackRock. They came out um, last year very, you know, uh, publicly making commitments. And then you had uh, you had uh, um, NGOs like Share Action come in and say, well, wait a second, you said this, you'll do this, but actually your voting record is really bad. And we also have that accountability in with respect to companies, right? So, for instance, we have companies that say, you know, we are supporting, uh, um, uh, for instance, a, a reduction in carbon emissions. And behind the scenes, they are paying lobbying groups to lobby against environmental regulations. Now, these are uh, pathologies that I think in the past, they were more and more difficult to uncover, but they're becoming increasingly, uh, uh, they are increasingly coming to the surface. So I think in that respect, I am optimistic because as a society, perhaps we're developing those accountability mechanisms to hold uh, even the largest of investor uh, to account. Uh, here's another example. Look at what is happening at Amazon when a company comes out publicly and says, you know, I'm committing to the environment, but actually you're an employee from within and you see that's not actually true. You speak up, you go out there and you say what's actually happening within the company and how solid or fickle that commitment is. And we do have the, 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 the means to do that. I mean, even the whole idea of whistleblowing on, uh, for governments is, is, is the same idea, right? When you make a public commitment and internal stakeholders see that that commitment is not true, they they speak up, and now we have the mechanisms for, the, for them to speak up. So I, in that sense, I am optimistic in the sense that it's not that I don't recognize these pathologies and these failures, as you mentioned earlier, from greenwashing to out, uh, outright lying, of, not just from investors, from companies and governments. Um, but I do have faith in the fact that um, perhaps because of social media, because of digitization, perhaps of sometimes laws and regulations, um, we are developing the mechanisms to hold them uh, to account. And by the way, that's a, the activism is a big chunk of that as well. It feeds into that, right? It feeds into that in terms of holding everyone accountable to what we're saying. And I think that we, that's why we've seen the explosion of activism um, in in, uh, in recent years. It's yet another very important mechanisms to, mechanism to hold to account. Now, if none of this happened, yes, I would be extremely worried about instances of greenwashing and fecal commitments. But I see in parallel, if you like, the development of these accountability mechanisms that um, that are a very, very positive development and hopefully will help us eliminate these pathologies in the system. Yeah, no, it's very interesting what you say and the, the, the extreme, the tremendous importance of investors. And yet, you know, the stock market in so so many ways is doesn't seem to be functioning in, 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 in key in key ways. We have a carbon bubble. We have, you know, if if the, the, the value of uh, fossil fuel companies was taken into account that, you know, what, what, what the, the value of the carbon that's actually in the ground and how much they can take out, you know, there's a massive carbon bubble there, which is still there today. And we have, as you said, you know, uh, notwithstanding the talk about uh, 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 investment portfolios and stuff, you know, big asset managers uh, overseeing huge, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars ongoing fossil fuel investments. 
Absolutely, uh, and, and, and absolutely, Fergal, but two things there. I think there's a um, sort of a corporate-level uh, issues here, and there is policy-level issues here. First of all, corporate-level, well, it's exactly, you know, that's why the corporate graveyard is packed with one's iconic brands, right? <laughs> Companies in the long run tend to miss these disruptions, tend to be unable to grasp these disruptions. Look at Polaroid, look at Sears, look at Kodak, the list goes on and on and on. Now, in other words, uh, especially for large successful companies like oil and gas, for instance, right? I would expect and we do see extreme amounts of inertia. Sometimes outright denial about where the world is going, fighting, right? That's why they, they, some of them have sponsored climate change denial in the same way that tobacco companies were fighting a war against research on lung cancer, right? So I, I, I do expect to see profound levels of inertia in terms of companies being able to adapt. And I often uh, uh, label sustainability as the mother of all disruption because uh, it's it's a, it's a domain in which uh, companies also lack the, the experience, the knowledge, and the skills to deal with the kind of issues that they have in front of them. Um, so I'm not surprised that that uh, that you know, as you said, there is a, uh, a a bubble in that because first of all, I would expect huge resistance from the companies themselves. Now, the policy framework here, though, is very important because finance is a very complex system and capital markets are a very complex system. And they're only now moving into a world where these environmental and social issues are being measured and being accounted for as risks. And they become part of the bigger conversation. For example, the, the, the parties agreement, the sustainable development goals. Now, why do you have these bubbles? Well, the, another reason at the policy level is that you have backtracking. Look what's happening in the U.S., for instance. The, the Trump administration has essentially dismantled the Environmental Protection Agency, backtracked significantly on environmental laws and regulations, backtracked significantly on uh, actually went on to support uh, the coal industry and so on. So if you have that kind of misguided or backtracking or confusing, at the very least, policy commitment, then it's hard to account for these factors because they distort the timeline, right? Whereas in the Obama administration, it was clear the direction of travel, right, in terms of reducing carbon emissions, becoming more environmentally responsible. Now the direction of travel has reversed and risks are not, you know, accounted for in a vacuum. Risks are accounted for among other things, against policy, right? And if policy seems to be so confusing, then risk cannot be fully measured, accounted for, and integrated. Um, and it's not just the U.S., by the way. There's many countries around the world. Look at Australia, for instance. Now, if you want to account for risk, what do you know? At the very least, you need a price for carbon. Well, yeah, yeah but we don't have fully functioning carbon markets because countries cannot agree. Why cannot they agree? Well, because there is this problem of coordination in each one of them looking at their individual interests, which means we fail in a global governance perspective. But if maybe, we have maybe, failed, Yannis, yeah. yeah, when it comes to carbon, maybe carbon markets aren't the way forward. I mean, there is this theme continuing that, you know, markets are the answer. You know, we create markets for carbon and so forth. And, you know, really uh, not enough perhaps going on in terms of regulation. Well, yeah, but we, the problem with regulation, Fergal, is that the world is not one jurisdiction. 
is the same with tax, tax, uh, tax regulation. It's not going to fix everything because then you have a race to the bottom by countries, right? That that's a, again a problem of governance. Whether you want to see it as a tax or regulation, uh, the, the fact that the world is not one jurisdiction it, we, it gets us back to the same problem again. That may be the case, but the U.S. is is very influential. You know, there are some key players that drive forward. You know, the, the way uh, that set set the context and the theme for these kind of issues. But you know, I I, I do hear what you're saying, but. It, I guess it brings up this question of, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk now about, you know, changes in capitalism, changes in, in the way companies operate and so forth. And I'm just wondering this question, you know, are companies as they've evolved today fit for purpose? We talked about some aspects of, you know, some issues, shall we say, at least with respect to the, the way the investors uh, relate and, and, and their desire for uh, and the way companies need, need to maximize their, you know, return uh, to shareholders and so forth. There are other issues in terms of the kind of the payment packages that senior executives are getting. Uh, perhaps you could talk also about the, the, the reduction in, in competition in, in, in huge sex swathes of America and, and other countries too, uh, more, more oligopolistic. Um, some 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 issues that are 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 uh, need to be addressed. How, how do you frame that and think about that? I don't think that uh, companies are fit for purpose, uh, and I think this goes back to what I uh, discussed earlier about sustainability as a disruption. Uh, it's going to be it is already a major disruption for businesses, and the issue is that a lot of them are still in denial about the extent and the depth and the speed and the magnitude. Uh, of this disruption. So it is going to hit them. So I think the story of sustainability at the corporate level uh, is going to be a double, a dual story where some companies, and I think this is going to be in the long run, the minority of companies um, will be able to adapt in this new world where environmental and social issues are a bit worsened, but they're also critical from a business point of view. Um, so that the, the one part of the story is going to be adaptation. And as always, a big chunk of this story is going to be a story of replacement, is going to be a story of new companies coming in, understanding perhaps better the conditions uh, that uh, ESG is creating and taking over uh, the markets. For instance, there, there is going to be, the, the, you, and you can see this duality playing, again, look at Tesla and traditional automobile uh, makers um, who are constrained by their, exist, by their existing investments in fossil fuel cars. Can they move at the speed and at the rate of Tesla? That's that's something that, uh, you know, uh, is, is to be determined, right? We don't know yet. That battle is being played out as we speak. Look, uh, look about, uh, think uh, the food industry and the battle over, you know, meat. You have see you see the impossible foods uh, of the world or the beyond meat of the world coming in and and and, and exploding uh, and and then competing with traditional meat uh, companies. So that's you see that's the kind of battle that I would expect to play out. Uh, and it's a I mean, quote unquote, it's a good paddle battle to be had because it will, in a sense, accelerate perhaps the adaptation by existing companies and those that are going to be able to adapt are going to be able to survive. But also shows us the the, the feasibility, if you like, of some of these future solutions. So there is no, again, one answer that all of them are or all of them are not fit for 
papers, but what I do expect us to see um, uh, through the lens of disruption is that it's going to be this continuous story that we will see played out in other industries as well in terms of new entrants coming in, really revolutionizing industries by being founded at their, their just very at the beginning with these principles in mind. And then the existing, especially existing large successful companies, as always, are going to have uh, a big challenge in terms of uh, in terms of adaptation. It's not impossible, uh, but it's going to be difficult. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, I wonder also about this question, you know, uh, of, of growth. Growth is uh, it's like motherhood and apple pie. It's more than that. It's it's what am I trying to say? Growth is essential in the corporate world. Is that compatible with sustainability? Um. <sighs> The traditional way of talking about growth seems to me that it isn't. Uh, but and I call it traditionally, though, because now we do have those very important conversations about uh, what is what's really growth and development. And I think that is the bigger debate about is GDP the right measure of growth, for instance? Are there any other things that we should take into account, for example, uh, that, that capture better the quality of life of people, things like happiness and emotional health and so on and mental health. Um, so I think that the, the, the short answer, because it's a big, big debate, but the short answer to your question is that traditional notions of financial only driven growth is, is arguably incompatible. Uh, but I do think that even there, even in those uh, very established macro measures, if you like, we do have and there are conversations uh, and there are raised doubts about uh, how to get to new measures that really capture um, um, true growth and human development, accounting for all aspects of an individual. Um, again, a, a, an indication that, you know, as a world, perhaps, and as a society, we are now opening very fundamental conversations that perhaps were not on the table five, ten years ago. And 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 in my view, again, this is my optimistic self now. I do you see how this there's this multi-level alignment of stars, if you like, <laughs> as a, uh, <laughs> in this domain. Uh, I, I choose I choose to be optimistic today. So <laughs> Robert Kennedy talked about this quite some time ago. It has been around for a while, but it's hard to escape the some sense that you know, disaggregating, looking at, 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 at uh, two, two and a half, maybe a little bit more uh, percent growth per, per annum uh, per, in a country. If you look at that, that's looking at doubling the overall scale of output over 25 years. And if we look at just how burdened and, and, and damaged so many uh, our ecosystems are, the, the actual material impact of that, so we're talking twice the level of, of out, output today over t the next 25 years, that's staggering. It absolutely is, and that brings into account the, the brings into focus, I guess, this this dimension of sustainability, which has to do with optimization of our, our use of resources. So, uh, for example, the, the whole like, the whole industry of waste management, the whole kind of groundbreaking idea of moving into a circular economy um, where we use and reuse those resources. We see continuous experimentation in material science with new materials that can. 
replace the for either the carbon intensive or resources that are harmful for us. I think there are a lot of developments in those kind of science-based domains that allow us to be um, optimistic, Fergal. I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, to to suggest that you know innovation is going to be the silver bullet and the human civilization is going to survive and everything will be great again. I, I, I'm not that optimistic, especially if one sees our use or overuse of resources and, and uh, uh, the fact that we're nowhere near uh, uh, where we should be in terms of carbon reduction to avoid catastrophic climate change. Um, again, these are pieces uh, of, of, of the puzzle. And, 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 you know, if you want me to wear my pessimistic hat, hat on i am profoundly profoundly saddened if you like or or concerned by the fact that although we do observe change uh, at the macro level at the micro level in markets and so on the issue is that the level and the speed of change are not nearly enough so i i would welcome and i want us and all of us to have a conversation about what kind of measures, what sorts of institutions, and I think we need new global institutions, what sorts of institutions do we need to account for, you know, our past perceptions, like the ones you mentioned earlier, like growth, and how do we measure growth, how do we measure human development, how does that translate for business policy, um, to have that uh, conversation about how we can sort of coordinate uh, 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 to get there. Some days I'm optimistic that we might be able to do that. Sometimes I'm pessimistic it, it, uh, because <laughs> it, it depends on the day. Uh, but, but, but at least that's the problem. <laughs> yes, yes. You talk about momentum and, and uh, speed of change. Now, uh, I don't quite know the, the statistics here, but they talk about you know, 90 companies causing two-thirds of man-made global warming emissions. I'm just wondering, why can't we get these 90 CEOs into a room, maybe in different several, several rooms or in different countries uh, spread around the world, but bring them into a room to, to affect massive change? <laughs> that's a, a very nice question, but I see. I think we could bring them into this room, but that's not the only people that we would need. Uh, they, the CEOs and their companies, do not operate in a vacuum. Um, this is a systems level problem that will require many stakeholders in the room, a lot of which we we discussed today. Think about the energy energy transition, the infrastructure growth, uh, and 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 uh, perhaps rebuilding that we. Uh, we would need the institutions that we discussed earlier, uh, the role of us as consumers, as employees in these organizations. Uh, I wish there were easy solutions like that where we could bring 90 people in the room and make it happen, um, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not going to happen. And, and also, uh, first of all, let's keep in mind, I mean, don't get me wrong, I do think that climate change is the most pressing existential challenge the world has ever seen in recent years, but it's not the only challenge. How about the social issues? How about the issues of income inequality, poverty, hunger, and all those things? Those are not going to be fixed by 90 companies and their carbon emissions. So I really wish there was a simple solution like that. I, I As I mentioned, even at the beginning of this interview, I do profoundly believe in the um, the impact that business can have, but it's, it cannot do it on its own. It has to be uh, all the stakeholders. And by the way, I don't like the uh, usually the, some of the questions being posed by others is, oh, it's either this or that or that. It's not an either or. We cannot afford to make a choice right now. It's all of the stakeholders that need to be uh, in the room, essentially, and on the table. 
Excellent. What's next for you, Yanis? Uh, a couple of, uh, I'm, I'm actually, as I call, in a period of rebalancing. So I'm launching uh, uh, this year a uh, five-week online program with OBS. It's called Sustainability Leadership and Corporate Responsibility. I'm very excited because we already have people on the waiting list and we are at least a month before launch. So I'm hoping for multiple cohorts a year, a course in which I've shared all of my knowledge, experience, and engagement that I've had over the last 10 or so years. Um, and within LBS, I'm also launching a couple of other initiatives, a new elective where finance meets sustainability, sorry, finance meets strategy on sustainability issues, a new experiential week for our LBS students in the Nordics to see sustainability on the ground. Um, I'm increasing the level of engagement that I have in terms of speaking and consulting with companies in order to uh, uh, transfer the impact, transfer the knowledge, if you like, and have an impact out there. Um, and, in, and, and my goal is to, to bring my research even closer to real-world phenomena, dilemmas, and, and essentially difficult decisions and trade-offs that businesses and investors um, are, are facing. Um, in terms of my research, I, I focus on these big questions, for instance, sustainability as a strategy, but also I'm interested in understanding yet another key stakeholder, which is the role of the customers in terms of uh, the product and, and service markets and what are the implications that they have on companies' um, uh, sustainability initiatives and, and that the, the whole idea of activism, uh, consumers as activists, it's, it's, it's a big chunk of that. And finally, slowly but steadily at the back of my mind, I'm developing a very interest, an interest in the intersection of AI, big data, and sustainability. I think there are huge synergies in terms of optimizing decisions, better prediction models, um, understanding underlying complex data and i think that if you were to ask me what's a a field within sustainability to keep an eye on i would definitely identify the intersection of sustainability and these uh new technologies as something that i expect very soon to break through uh because there are tremendous potential there uh and and, and that's something that again I, I i follow and i i keep in the back of my mind well, you've got a very full plate there, Yanis. Um, thank you so much for your time today. That was a very spirited and, and very, very interesting discussion. And I wish you all the best of success with your ongoing work. Thank you so much for having me. As always, it's, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.